0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze.
1: Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
0: McCormick, and it's Monday, listener mail time. Uh, We hope you are ready to hear some messages that uh, have slammed into our inbox over the past few days. So, uh, Rob, if you're ready, I'll, I'll jump right in on this message from Matt about our episodes on beans. Let's do it. Matt says, good day, fellas. Love the recent bean episodes. My family and I grow corn, wheat, and soybeans here in Ontario, so I was thrilled to see you focus so much attention on the humble legume. I thought I knew quite a bit about them before, but learned much more. The mythical historical context of beans was something I was largely unaware of and found particularly interesting. Had a couple of thoughts. You mentioned the use of a couple different beans slash legumes in the developing plant protein market. There's a huge push here in Canada to capitalize on this for many different crops, particularly in the West – Lentils, chickpeas, soybeans, and a bunch more. Each one has a lot of potential uses beyond what's already current, and not just for food products destined for direct human consumption. On a related note, I think looking into how useful beans, grains, and other field crops are in industrial processing would be a neat subject. Like animal byproducts, they are in many things we use or depend on every day without realizing it. The number of subsequent uses one particular crop can have is another thing. For example, the use of barley grain in beer production, then the subsequent use of the spent mash as feed for livestock. That's interesting. Yeah. One last thing, the Listener Mail episode contained a letter suggesting you cover animal science. There's a lot of interesting work going on in this field in the agricultural space. I don't know much about the medical side, but that's surely pretty interesting too, so I would similarly suggest the subject. Thanks again for your work, Matt. Oh, thanks, Matt. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a great idea.
2: Uh, Keep growing those chickpeas. All right. Here's one that comes to us from Spencer. Spencer says, Hi, Robert, Joe and Seth. I've listened to your show nonstop since 2018, and I adore the work y'all put out. I picked the show up on the Alphabet and the Goddess episodes while working on a sustainable vegetable farm, and I haven't looked back. I recently switched from a career in farming to become a high school science teacher, and I can proudly say that you were pivotal in making that decision. Sharing in the joy of investigating curiosities across the natural world, the expansive universe, and our fascinating inner worlds has made uh, such an impact on me. I only hope to bring to my students that same level of joy and curiosity. I'm sure your work inspires all sorts of educators across the field. Ah, but which field? (laughs) The The I, bean field, oh wait, I just realized
0: i think I think I told Matt to keep growing chickpeas, but Matt didn't say he grew chickpeas. He said he grew corn wheat and soybeans, sorry, Matt, I keep growing those whichever one you like best, grow the
2: soybeans, Love them. L- legume faux pas there make make me tofu. All right. Uh, anyway, this this letter continues. I have two things I'd like to share. One, I recently listened to the two-parter on beans and found myself putting my farmer hat back on, specifically when you spoke about the storage capacity of the lowly bean and how crucial that was to the development of settled civilizations. I found myself going back to June afternoons in the North Carolina muck. We would often soak dried beans before planting them to assist their germination success. This got me thinking about something that's always astounded me. How does an inert, dried object so ostensibly not alive have the capacity to live so vibrantly once it's in the right conditions? I would love to hear an episode about the magic of germination, not just the mythical and metaphorical connotations of seeds giving way to life, but how is it that stale, crusty seeds can suddenly burst into lush, green plant forms? That's a great idea. I feel like that's come up in bits and pieces on subjects
0: in the past. I know. I know. Um, in a pair of episodes we did about uh, about natural fires, about like fires in the forest, we talked about mm. some germination that depends on the stimulation of of a forest fire to get going.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, you know. Speaking of education and all, uh, I, I think I, I I thought about this, but ended up not mentioning it in the beans articles, uh, beans episodes rather. But it reminded me of those, those science experiments that I think a lot of us uh, conduct when we we're children in school, where you take the, the bean and you have it in the Ziploc bag with some, like a wet paper towel, and then you watch that germination process take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's ultimately such a, you know, a magical feeling and amazing spectacle to watch. And we kind of, I don't know, we kind of forget it over time. We for, yeah. forget how, how amazing it is uh, that seeds do what they do. It reminds me of, uh, in the office, Creed sprouting
0: mung beans on a damp paper towel in his desk.
2: <laughs> oh, man. we I don't think we even got to discuss mung beans in those episodes. I had, like, a few notes on mung beans and had some uh, source highlighted, but I just don't think we had time to get into it. Uh, yeah, there were, like, tons of beans we didn't have time to get into.
0: I guess we're coming back for three, four, five, six, seven more episodes on beans.
2: The bean saga continues. The, the people want it. <laughs> All right. Spencer continues, though. He had two, two things to bring up. That was just the first. Number two, I went back into the vault and rediscovered the excellent episode on teasing. In this episode, you made a call out to educators. What is it like to teach children how to tease? I thought I'd chime in with a unique take. Since I've been uh, in a one-year teacher preparation program that started in a pandemic, I have only interacted with my students through Zoom and email. You can imagine that impedes natural social relationships with anyone, but I think this is especially important for young people. Regarding teasing, I don't think you can tease others so easily when you've only met online, not to mention that most students keep their cameras off. Yeah, It's also difficult to gauge someone's off-the-record cues for a teasing moment. As a result, my classes have mostly taken a no-teasing policy. Sometimes a student will chime in a response in the Zoom chat to other students' comments, and it just seems like bullying. There ain't much of a nuanced way to delineate playful from harmful teasing when you're just working with a chat log.
0: Oh, yeah, I can absolutely see that. Um Obviously, good natured teasing can be a lot of fun in person. And it's I think it's an important thing for the development of kids to, like, you know, le- learn to tell the difference, to read those subtle cues. But that's going to be a lot harder over the Internet.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's harder for adults, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of us have probably encountered that with using Zoom for, um, you know, especially for for social scenarios, catching up with friends and all like it's not the same in in so many ways. Anyway, Spencer continues. I wonder what the virtual year of education will do to our young people, still in their most formative periods of social and emotional development. Well, this got rather long-winded. Hope you all are well. Please keep sharing your curiosity, joy, and humor with us. It is so necessary. Cheers, Spencer. Uh, P.S. Weird House is dope. Well, thank you, Spencer. Thanks for for writing in with all those thoughts. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, yeah, open question on what the the, the, the tele-era of Of uh, education uh, and work and socialization. Like, what, like, how will we look back on this uh, a year from now, two years from now, et cetera? Um, It's, uh, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be interesting to, to discuss it and, and hear, hear folks analyzing it. Agreed. But congrats on your move into teaching. That's awesome.
0: Help sprout those young minds like mung beans on a damp paper towel. Yes. Here we got one that's sort of beans, but maybe uh, edges into weirdhouse cinema. I don't know. This is from someone who calls themselves the Golden Sardine. Fair enough. Call yourself what you want to call yourself. Okie dokie. Uh, Golden Sardine says, Howdy again. I I guess I don't remember the last time. Uh, They say, Today I was listening to your two-parter about beans when you mentioned the lack of bean-themed horror in cinema. That's right, yeah. Uh, I could only think of one horror movie related to beans, and that would be My Name is Bruce, starring Bruce Campbell. I like to think of it as the unofficial Evil Dead 4. The gist of the plot is that a bean curd demon is released in a small town. The town folks then decide to kidnap Bruce Campbell, Due to his extensive demon fighting experience, hijinks ensue. It might not be weird house material, but it's at least worth a watch. Anyways, I enjoy the show and look forward to future episodes. The Golden Sardine. Um, I, I, I haven't seen that movie. I, I do enjoy Bruce Campbell and he he's a, he's a delightful ham, uh, but that sounds like that's played for comedy. And that's not what I had in mind when I was saying there should be more bean horror.
2: I mean, like straight scary bean horror. Well, this was not an example I was familiar with, but, uh, I think it's a solid one. Uh, but it, it reminds me of another, uh, example, and this is not a straight horror film. It's more of a, like a fantasy film for all ages, but is, but it is by, uh, Takashi, uh, Mike. Who is kind of a notable uh, Japanese filmmaker because of some of the more, I guess, extreme and troubling material that he's created uh, over the years. But this one, The Great Yukai War from uh, 2005, is, uh, as I remember it, it's been a little bit uh, more of a a family fantasy affair with a bunch of Japanese spirits. And there's like an evil guy that kind of looks like M. Bison uh, that they're opposing and I think they, if I remember correctly, they end up using uh, azuki beans to defeat the enemy. Like azuki beans are the are the, are the are the are the the final weapon they turn to, and it successfully rids them of the demon horror. Well, that sounds interesting. But you're saying that that's probably sort of played for for comedy too. Uh um, is all over
0: the map in terms of genre and tone, right? Like he does extremely right. dark, serious violent nasty horror and like family movies and musicals and comedies and stuff it's it's like everything right
2: yeah like this is a pretty pretty far away from like audition or something like that this one i think is for the for the family um it it was played for laughs but it also i think was clearly getting into some of those traditions we were talking about earlier about the idea that beans have this innate power to dispel demons uh, if you're listening,
0: whoever you are, film uh, Guillermo del Toro or whatever, yeah, uh, give, give us the straight
2: dark bean horror. All right, here's one. This one comes to us from Wonko. Uh, this one is titled Cats and Humans in Boxes. Hello, again, Robert and Joe. I'm writing in today with an interesting counterpoint to the Cats Love Boxes argument. The wife and I live in the employ of three cats. Two of them will climb into a box, as expected, but the third, who is blind, actually has a borderline fear response. My theory is that the box is a sudden change to her accustomed environment. If we leave it for a while, she will begin to investigate, but I have never seen her climb into one, nor will she use an enclosed litter box. Thanks again. Keep up the great work. Walco. That's interesting. I've never heard of that before. I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, the cat's... Are just, they're going to break the, the rules. They're going to break mm-hmm. your expectations of them. If there's something that is considered like a general rule of cats, well, a cat will come along and violate that rule. Cats love boxes? No. You, you, someone out there, you will have the cat that abhors boxes, and there's nothing you can do about it because <laughs> cats ultimately have the final say.
0: Okay, another one about the uh, two-parter we did about uh, cats in boxes and humans in boxes. This one is from Simon. Simon says, hi, guys. Love the podcast. Just wanted to give you a heads up on pronunciation from a recent show. The, uh, the A text about how to become an anchoress came up, and, and I called it the Ancrene Weese, the A-N-C-R-E-N-E, and then W-I-S-S-E. Uh, but Simon says it, the Onkrine Wiese popped up and you pronounced both words with a silent final E. The consensus pronunciation would have those final vowels voiced rather like a German speaker might pronounce Porsche, uh, I think. So I believe it would be Onkrine Wiese, I guess, if if Simon is correct. A great and entertaining resource for Old English pronunciation is the History of English podcast, where this book appears in episode 103. Again, love the work. Thanks,
2: Simon <laughs> All right, we had an email here from Josh, and uh, it's a good email. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to just highlight a couple of things they bring up that are pretty solid about cats and their boxes. Uh, because Josh brings up the idea of opening a drawer and then taking things out of the drawer, you turn around, cats in the drawer. Oh yeah, uh, I have also observed this as well. If the drawer is open and it is not like completely stuffed, if the cat is around, the cat will just appear. It will summon the cat out of out of midair, and then she will climb into the drawer. The, the other thing that Josh brings up is that, uh, that they think that their own cat, uh, when it comes to sitting on papers, you know, be it uh, mortgage documents, medical bills, et cetera, uh, they say, um, quote, I think this is because she can kill two birds with one stone. She gets to sit on paper and she gets to demand my attention. Uh, and uh, the, Josh also included pictures of the cat doing just this.
0: Yeah, I hypothesized something like this when we were talking about cats on squares and stuff that I, I wonder if a significant amount of this is just that a cat notices you paying attention to a square of paper or a, even a square you've laid down with tape or something like that. And the cat is trying to be in your center of attention.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it seems to be the case at times. I know that there are times where the cat want I, – I have – I can relate to a cat wanting my attention, like it wants to be fed. She wants to be fed. So she is going to be conspicuous by where she is, you know, generally underfoot or crawling on me, that sort of thing. Okay. I got
0: one more though about the, when you say cats sitting in drawers, I just remembered a friend of mine had a cat who loved to sit in the bathroom sink. And so if you're at his house, every time you go to the bathroom, you go to wash your hands, the cat's there in the sink and will not move. Uh, So the question is, do you turn on the water or not? Uh, It seems like it would be cruel to do so, but how else are you going to wash your hands?
2: Uh, I I have a friend who used to have a cat like this, that you would go to the sink and the cat would be at the sink. And this cat wanted you to turn the water on because it also wanted to drink the water from the uh, the sink. (laughs) It's really not soapy water. No, no, no. The fresh water from the spigot. Nice. But they didn't know how to do it themselves. So, you know, it's like clearly go in there when a human is in there, they're going to turn it on. And maybe from the cat's point of view, that's why the human's here. Like at last... Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
0: All right. Actually, a number of listeners got in touch uh, about their about their cats. I'm going to re- uh, mention parts of another email here. This one we got from longtime listener Sheldine. Sheldine mentions having four cats in her house, and she says uh, they all love boxes to some extent. But our oldest cat, Lily, she's 14, basically lives in a box in the kitchen. We've always thought it was a warmth thing only. Uh, it's in a corner under the radiator. But your episode has made me reconsider this. It might also be a social thing. Uh, the Sheldine says that apparently she's the dominant cat, though. That's based on some sleuthing. She did based on a, a cat behavior article she read on the internet. So maybe we should take that with a grain of salt. Um, but she says, regardless, the other three cats are male and two of them fight with Lily. So I think her behavior might also have a social component in her box she's out of the way and safe uh, so that that might connect to the thing we talked about in the episode where a possible reason cats might see boxes among the many others is just a way of mediating social conflict you know in the box getting in the box could essentially just be an avoidance behavior to to avoid conflicts Sheldine also says uh I think this is picking up on the story I had from my childhood where when we used to take our cat to the vet uh we would take her in a in a cardboard cat carrier that had like air holes and everything but it wasn't like the plastic and metal crates of today. It was it was made of cardboard. And Sheldine says, Joe, regarding the cat carriers, I can tell you that before immigrating, my cats regarded the cat carriers with dismay when they came out, but they would still enter them to explore, which was when I would trap them. Since their very long flight to another country, they now regard the carriers with utter terror. It's a bit <laughs> sad that it was so obviously a terrifying experience for them. Fortunately, we now have a vet who comes to us, so we only need to haul out the carriers in an emergency. And touching on the need for warmth, we have hammock beds hanging off of radiators in our home, and I think if I could fit in one, I'd find them extremely warm. But the cats love the radiators, and she attaches a picture for us to look at. And so that goes along with What we've been talking about, about how often cats will will seek out, you know, a hot computer or radiator or anything, because in general, if your house is comfortable for humans to be in, it's probably too cold for cats. Their their thermo neutral temperature is much higher than the average humans is,
2: you know, on the difference between cats. It is interesting to to hear from someone who owns a cat, first of all, earlier that the, the cat wants to drink water from a tap. Uh, Part of me is is just like, what was what is that like to have a cat that will drink water that Mm -hmm. is that is not uh, part of some meat already? Because it's 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 always a struggle to make sure that our cat has enough water uh, uh, in its body uh, because it doesn't seem interested in any water that is not part of meat already. And then this idea that like the the cat being drawn to the radiator, uh, like we we got this heating pad for the pet. You know, that's kept at, like, a low temperature but to provide some heat. And at best, she'll lay next to it. Sometimes, mm-hmm. like, like you know, maybe just picking up on some of the ambient heat. But other times, she seems to be actively avoiding it, as if to say, I do not like this. This is <laughs> this is unnatural, and I refuse to sit on it. I don't know. Maybe we're doing something wrong. I'm sorry you're having cat problems, man. No, 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 no. I mean, she's, she's all right at the moment. I mean, she is in general a problem, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, she's great too, so what can you do?
0: One last thing Sheldine mentions is uh, the idea that you raised in the Cats and Squares episode, uh, Rob, about the possibility, and I still think this is a very, very good idea that, that should be explored more, the possibility that maybe a lot of cats that live in houses like squares and sheets of paper and things like that on the ground, uh, not as an instinctual thing about being a cat, but as a conditioned behavior where they've become accustomed to sitting on a square of sunlight that pours through the window onto the floor to get warm. And so now they always think, oh, a square on the floor, that, 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 that'll be warm. I, I do think that, that seems very plausible to me. Yeah. And uh, Sheldine says that indeed her cats do follow the squares of sun all around the house.
2: Hmm. That would this would be an interesting one to see some uh, some sort of experimentation take place. Yeah, um, you know, f- figuring out exa- exactly to what extent uh, they're drawn to the the you know the geometric aspects uh, of the light as opposed to just the presence of light and warmth.
0: Anyway, Sheldine says, "Hopefully, you guys already know that I love the show and appreciate all the effort you put in." Best wishes, Sheldine. Uh, thanks, Sheldine. Oh, and Sheldine has a P.S. about the the collective noun for cats, which she claims. I don't know if she's she's teasing us here. She says the collective noun for cats is a clouder, hmm. c l o w d e r. That sounds made up. Okay. Uh, and that for kittens it is a kindle. Also hmm. sounds made up. I don't know. I'll take your word for it.
2: All right, this one comes to us from Carlton. Hello, Robin. Joe. I wanted to share a connection to your Artifact episode titled The Toad Vomit Miracle. I'm a middle school reading specialist, and I use a program with my students to help improve their comprehension, which features short, high-interest passages. One of them, which happens to be a student favorite, is called Frog Vomit. I have included the text below. The program is grounded in dual coding theory to help facilitate improvements in reading comprehension through the use of mental imagery. In order to accomplish this, the students spend lots of time reading, visualizing, and talking about passages written to stimulate visual imagery. The striking imagery of a frog or toad vomiting up its own stomach and using its quote-unquote hands to scrape out the contents is usually very effective. The way I check for understanding is by asking my students to show me a hand motion of the hand scraping the stomach. If their hands are in the right place, where a stomach would dangle from their mouths, making a scraping uh, down and out motion, and they are giggling, then I know they have created a strong mental image of the concept, uh, or a gestalt, as the program describes. I was so excited to listen to an episode about a topic that I have had the joy of helping students cover through reading. On that note, have you considered an episode about the science of reading? It's an extremely broad-reaching topic with plenty of controversy, and there have been time periods described as the reading wars where proponents of science and popular practices clashed. The phrase science of reading is a hot topic in education right now as well. I would love to hear you guys discuss the multiple topics it could bring up. Recently, I have been super interested in how the dyslexic brain works. The amount of cognitive processes that happen before we construct meaning from print is not only amazing, but also something our brains aren't actually designed to do. I often wonder what life would be like for my students with dyslexia if they lived in a time or alternate reality where the printed word was not such a ubiquitous and important feature of our society. On another note, and to connect uh, to a previous episode, and I am thinking of this as I write this, I wonder how a uh, corpus colosotomy this, uh, to remind everybody, this is the, when the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres of the brain is severed um, as a medical intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, they ask how this affects reading and if it would affect a dyslexic brain's ability to read in a different way. Anyways, thank you for the awesome show and hope you get a chance to read this. Carlton. And then they include uh, that bit of text. This is the text that, again, Carlton is using in these, uh, uh, these exercises to, uh, to stimulate mental imagery in the, re- in the young reader's brain. It goes as follows. When a frog has eaten something that makes him feel sick, he vomits up his entire stomach. He heaves until his stomach flops out and dangles from his mouth like a sack. Then he reaches up with his forelegs and scrapes out the stomach's sickening contents. Once the stomach is clean and empty, he swallows it down again. <laughs> Dude, you
0: did that like the narrator of Beast of Yucca Flats. That's really good. <laughs> Caught in the wheels of vomit.
2: <laughs> I have to say, though, reading that, the frog I'm picturing doing it is like the, uh, like a Mr. Toad's wild ride kind of a frog with a hat. Oh no! In a suit yeah. and an old-timey uh, car, automobile behind him on the oh. road. I don't know why. I thought you
0: were going to say the frog you were picturing was Tor Johnson.
2: <laughs> Though you know he maybe he's kind of he had kind of a frog-like appearance, didn't he? Uh, but. No, I think maybe it's the mention of the hands. Actually, you mentioned Mm. frogs. You mentioned hands. That makes me think Mr. Toad's wild ride and Mm. and related uh, media. And then, therefore, when we get into this description here, that's what I'm picturing. I'm not picturing an actual frog doing it, though, of course, actual frogs do this all the time. I'm picturing a cartoon frog doing it with his cartoon human hands.
0: Uh, My much less cultured brain, I think, pictures the frog character from Chrono Trigger.
2: (laughs) I don't know this frog. You never play Chrono Trigger for the SNES? Mm, no, no, I had a I had a Sega Genesis, so I, I missed oh, out on some of this.
0: You know, Rob, uh, I was playing Altered Beast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, altered! Well, that's a good one too. When you go into Beast mode, but uh, but but but, and not to be like the oh, you got to play this RPG guy. But Chrono Trigger really is magical. It's worth going back to revisit uh, if All you can right, find an emulator up. of it or something. It's it's great. Okay, one last one here. This is about Weird House Cinema, and it's from Ryan. Ryan says, Hi, Joe and Rob. Not sure if this movie is B enough, but have you seen Wavelength? I believe it was from either 81 or 82. Uh, Actually, I think I looked it up, and it's 83. Uh, But Ryan says, and features one of the Carradine brothers and Sherry Curie from Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. It also features a soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. I know you, you know the key to Rob's heart here. Uh, Ryan says, I drive for Lyft and always have you guys delivering excellent content through my earbud. Thanks for the awesome shows, and I'm looking forward to many more, Ryan.
2: Well, I have not seen Wavelength, but I looked it up, and the first thing I saw was the poster, which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. It has uh, like these pods with extraterrestrials like stuck in them or preserved in them. I'm not sure which. So, great poster. Throw in a tangerine dream score and a lesser guarantee, brother, and my curiosity is certainly raised. So uh, I'm going to have to put it on the the potential list. This is one of those that has
0: two different taglines
2: on the same poster. That always, to me,
0: seems – it signals marketing insecurity. So one of them is up near the top, and it goes, Two weeks ago, they landed on Earth. Today, beneath an American city, the experiments begin. Dot, dot, dot. But then down at the bottom right, it says, the alien terror is here on Earth, exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, I'm not, neither one's very good, but they, they kind of don't compliment.
2: Yeah. <laughs> at any rate, it, it, it looks interesting, and I'm, I'm sure it sounds very interesting, uh, what with the Tangerine Dream. I'd give it a go. All right. Well, that's the end of this mailbag. We thank everybody for writing in. Uh, One note, I believe we're, we're, usually we record our listener mails a lot closer to the publication date, uh, but I think we're recording this one like a couple of weeks out or maybe one week out. I'm not sure. More time than usual. Uh, So there's going to be more listener mail that accumulates for next time. And if none of these listener mails uh, touched on very recent episodes, well, that is why, because you are in the future and we are here in the past. Hello. If you would like to write in, uh, then, hey, do so. We'd love to hear from you regarding some of these listener mails or past episodes, possible future episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Weird House Cinema. Uh, Just let us have it. Uh, In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Weird House Cinema, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Weird House Cinema on Fridays, more listener mail on Mondays, and on Wednesdays, we tend to bust out an episode of The Artifact. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent
0: audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com.
1: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. work. Zumo Play.